You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Well, again, my name is Nathan, and I am a covenant member of Connection. And now as we prepare to study God's word together, let us bow for a moment of prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through the scriptures and through the glorious life and the ministry of Jesus. We praise you that by the gracious, atoning sacrifice of Jesus, you have adopted us as your beloved children. You have even granted to us the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the ongoing work of grace you are doing in our hearts to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Be with us now, we pray, as we study the word. Speak to us so that we can know you more and so we can even understand ourselves rightly in light of who you are. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 57. We are in Psalms. We're continuing our study in the book of Psalms. And just as we did last week, we will pick up our study in Psalm 57. So you can look for a Bible in the chair that is in front of you, underneath one of the chairs that's in front of you, or if you brought your Bible along, or you can turn that on your mobile device, but this is Psalm 57. And as you take time to turn there, I want to share with you just one small blessing, one small uh, benefit that I had in, in my personal devotion, yes, but also in my study and my preparation to preach this morning. I took uh, an online course called Learning to Love the Psalms. And if you want to know more about that course, if you want me to direct you where you can find that, I'd be happy to share that with you after our service and our time together. But I took this course, Learning to Love the Psalms, and it was by Dr. Robert Godfrey, who was a seminary president and professor. And he had so many things in that course that I benefited from in learning about the Psalms, understanding the Psalms better. Uh, And I'm not going to go into all of them this morning because we don't have time for that, and that's not even really the goal of what we're here to do this morning. But I did want to share with you just one thing, and I think it will be helpful as we look at Psalm 57 again this morning. Dr. Godfrey talked about how the Psalms are poetry. And we don't read much poetry anymore. We don't live in a poetic age. Uh, Maybe the closest thing we have to poems anymore are songs. But for the most part, we don't really read a whole lot of poetry. And so that makes poetry in the Psalms a little bit of a challenge to us sometimes. But to understand poetry is to understand fine art. Just like any piece of fine art, like a fine art, a a work of art, a, a painting, every time you look at a piece of fine art, you can see something new. And finding something new in a glorious painting even may deepen your understanding and make you see the painting in an entirely new light. And Dr. Godfrey, in elaborating on this theme, he talked about a poet who was writing about these poems, these psalms. And the poet was weaving in the themes and the, psal- the, the themes and the, the verses, even verbatim themselves, of the, the beautiful psalm, Psalm 23. And at one point in this poet's poem, the poet stopped when he got to the words, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And the poet stopped and he said, Surely. What a beautiful word. Surely. And just like that, 
looking at one word in all of the words of Psalm 23, we can change our understanding, see Psalm 23 in an entirely new light and a deeper, deeper and fuller understanding of God's character and his nature. So if during the reading of Psalm 57 or if during the sermon your mind drifts away, that's okay, I understand, I've been there myself. But pay attention to the word or phrase that catches your eye or moves your heart because that is the grace of God to bring you to a fuller and richer understanding of himself, of his character and of his nature. So having said that, let's read together Psalm 57. Psalm 57, it says, To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a mitcom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is God's word, and this is our prayer that by grace we would see God's glory experience God's glory, and proclaim God's glory to the nations. Well, last week, we continued our summer study in the Psalms by exploring the themes of Psalm 57 that we just read. Specifically, we looked at verses 1 through 5, which we referred to as part 1. But this morning, we will continue to unpack the themes of Psalm 57 by focusing on part 2, that is verses 6 through 11. Now, I don't want you to feel left out if you weren't here last week or if this is your first time visiting with us. The good news is that the themes build upon themselves, so which we'll see as we continue to look at this text together. So let's just continue by reviewing briefly some of the themes we explored last week. First, we considered David's glory, David's peril and God's glory. David's peril and God's glory. And we did that because the context of this psalm is the dire situation in which David finds himself. We see it mentioned in the inscription we read at the beginning that David composed this psalm when he was fleeing from Saul in the cave. 
And we can see throughout these verses that David did not make light of his circumstances. He was very honest to God about his circumstances. And a brief understanding of David's circumstances is worthwhile here. Because David wasn't simply running and hiding from a friend who was mad at him. No, he was hiding from the sovereign head of an entire nation who could marshal all of the resources and the power of that nation to hunt him down and kill him. Or to kill anyone who gave assistance, aid, or shelter to David. David said that Saul was like a storm of destruction. He felt as if he had almost nowhere to turn, like there was nowhere to go, like a storm of destruction. And all of this was happening for what reason? Why was this happening? Had David done something wrong? No. This was all just because Saul was jealous of David. David wasn't the king at this time. Saul was the king. But David's fan club, for lack of a better word, was growing bigger and bigger by the day. God had given his anointing and his blessing to David, taken it away from Saul because of Saul's arrogance and disobedience. And this favor was manifesting itself in the ways that the people of Israel were praising David more than Saul. So Saul's anger was kindled against David, and he wanted to kill David, and David was forced to run for his life. Of course he was scared. You and I would be scared. This is the peril that we looked at, and David was very honest about it with God. Just look at the vivid imagery and the metaphors he uses to describe his situation. He felt that he was caught in a storm with nowhere to run. We see that in verse 1. He feels trampled down. You see that in verse 3. He feels like he was encircled by lions and beasts. That's verse 4. And continuing in verse 4, it almost seemed to him that there was arrows, spears, swords, and daggers all coming down on him. But through all of that, his hiding place in all of that peril is not the cave. The cave isn't mentioned anywhere in the entirety of this psalm. It's just at the beginning in that little inscription that we read. And that's because the cave was not David's shelter. His shelter and his refuge was not in the shadows of the cave, but instead in the very wings of God himself. In verse 1, he says, In you, God, in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. That, as we saw, is an image of God as a mother hen covering her chicks with her wings. So this is how the actions of David, hiding in God, animate and even answer David's own prayer. That God would be glorified and exalted because this is one of the aspects of God in suffering. Hiding in God amid suffering glorifies God. It brings glory to God. And that's pretty important for us to understand because the chief end of man, as we understand it, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's what we were created to do. But so often to us in the face of trials and sufferings, it may feel that the chief end of man is to minimize those trials, to minimize those sufferings. So often it seems amid the storms of life that the meaning of life is the preservation of life by any means necessary. We'll do anything to control our own destiny. We'll do anything to master our own fate. So instead of hiding in God, we hide ourselves away in any number of earthly distractions. Too many to count, too many for me to even list here, but you can think of them. You can think of the ways, you can think of the distractions in which you hide amid life's frustrations, its difficulty, its anxiety. Singer-songwriter Andrew Osinger put it this way. He said, we hide in busyness. That's just one way. We hide in busyness and hear ourselves say that we trust the hand of God. What a lie. That's a lie. 
Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That's the truth. But how often do we as sinners look for refuge and strength in anything but God? Perhaps even all the while lying to ourselves that we trust him. We hide in busyness and hear ourselves say we trust the hand of God. But this is seeking our own glory instead of God's. And in this way, the root of this sin is the same as the very first sin. We want the glory. We want to be God. Our prayer for being honest is be exalted, O me. Let my glory be over all the earth. Thank God. God, we have a Savior. Thank God we have a Savior who has faced a storm of destruction greater than any of a storm that we will ever face when he bore the curse of sin on the cross. Thank God that in his living, in his suffering, there was never a trace nor stain of sin. Even as Jesus bowed his head and he died, he quoted these words from Psalm 31 when he said, into your hands, that is God the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We have a Savior who left all of the comforts of heaven to endure more suffering than any of us could ever imagine. But he did it perfectly. He didn't avail himself of any earthly comfort, of any earthly deliverance. Instead, in an even more perfect way than David, he hid himself in the loving care of God the Father. And we can see then, even in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, that he did this all for the glory of God. This was the theme that we considered last week, and we returned to again this morning, that God is glorified when we hide in Him. And the other theme that we considered was the glory of God's promised deliverance. In verses 2 and 3, David lays claim to God's promised and heavenly deliverance when when he says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. Do you see there the certainty with which David trusts God's promises? even amidst his terrible circumstances. Again, this is hiding in God, not an earthly comfort, not an earthly wisdom, and this is how we glorify God. But I think even that the beautiful thing, the amazing thing, perhaps even the comforting thing for us to consider is that God's promises are infinitely more trustworthy than certain than our personal feelings about them. Do you see how many times in the span of just those two verses, David uses the word will, He will send from heaven. He will put to shame. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. God fulfills his purpose for me. This is not a question. It's a declaration. In this psalm, David seems to be personally convinced. He seems to be personally assured of God's promised deliverance. But even if he wasn't, even if he was harboring just a shadow, just a sliver of a doubt, as he seems to do, and the other, all other psalmists seem to do elsewhere, they seem to confess and express this to God elsewhere in the Psalms, but even if David harbored the shadow of a doubt, he uses these words. You see these words, God's steadfast love and his faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning with God. That's what James tells us. And if we get this wrong about God, it's no wonder we look to any earthly comfort or personal effort in times of difficulty. 
But God never changes. And I know that's so hard for us to understand because change is all around us. Seasons change. You can change your mind. Plans change. Circumstances change. Even the things we think will never change, change all the time. They change of a blink of an eye. We're intimately familiar with this. Remember COVID? Everything changed. Remember when you used to be able to go, you used to skip security and go right up to the gate at the airport and see your friend or your family member who is coming home or visiting home uh, from a trip? Everything changes. It's all we know. The only constant is change, but God doesn't change. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And earlier in his letter to the Hebrews, the author says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature. So by that logic, we could say God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I want to ask you, in the light of that, I want to ask you and challenge you with this question, which is more real, lasting, or permanent? Our feelings or God's character? Which is more certain, God's promises or our feelings about them? And I know that you know that we're all supposed to know the answer to this question. But as we looked earlier, so easily we forget. But God's love is steadfast. Just ponder that for a moment. Just ponder the word steadfast. He's faithful. If you only take home with you those two truths... God's steadfastness, his faithfulness, it'll be worth it. You'll be hiding, if you hide them in your heart, you meditate on them day and night, you'll be able to say with the hymn writer, when all around my soul gives way, he, that is Jesus, is all my hope and stay. You will be hiding in God, which brings glory to God, and you'll be trusting in his promised deliverance, which is accomplished through a victory that will also bring him all the glory. We rejoiced last week when we saw the beautiful irony of the victory of Jesus, who trampled underfoot him who tramples on me. God Most High is a God who delivers his people from their enemies, and he delivers them into his very own hands. So this is how God glorifies himself, by saving his people to his own favor and by destroying his enemies. And that brings us to part two of this psalm, verses six through 11. Now you may notice that part two begins in verse six where we left off in verse four. Part two begins where part one ends. And that's because of the structure of this psalm. Psalm 2, part part 2 of this psalm takes all of the themes that are in part 1, but it amps them up to the next level, and it puts them in reverse order. So nerd out with me, bear with me as we look look and consider the, the, the structure of this psalm. It'll help us to have a better understanding, a fuller, richer understanding of God's glory when we're done with it. Part 1 ends with a description of David's enemies, but part 2 begins with their guaranteed defeat and utter embarrassment. See there in verse 6, they dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. So if part 2 begins where part 1 ends, that means that part 1 begins where part 2 ends. Again, bear with me. Part 1 begins with direct addresses to God, and part 2 ends with direct addresses to God. But notice that they are different. In part 1, the direct addresses to God are pleased to God for his mercy. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. But part 2, in verses 9, we read another direct address to God. David says, I will give thanks to you, O God. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Both direct addresses to God. And finally, we can see the middle section of both part one and two, the B sections. 
of both parts. In part one, just as we talked about, David trusts in what God will do. But in part two, David proclaims what he himself will do. What David himself will do. We read that in verses seven and eight. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. So understanding this structure of the psalm leads us to consider further at least three more aspects of God's glory. And the first is this, it's the glory of God in victory. Building on what we already discussed last week and revisited earlier this morning, we can see that God is glorified by turning the instruments of attack back on the attacker. Now, I don't mean to be tongue-in-cheek. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but just looking at the imagery of verse 6, it's hard not to laugh. This is because, again, I'm I'm sorry, I'm going to say it, it almost makes me think of Wiley Coyote. Yeah, Looney Tunes, right? Wiley Coyote. He, you see this in verse 6. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. That's humorous. That's funny. You think of Wiley Coyote working so hard to dig a pit for the roadrunner to fall in. He lays this net over the pit, and he covers it with leaves and puts a bait out for roadrunner to come and fall into the pit. But inexplicably, roadrunner runs right over this trap, and... Every time, Wiley Coyote falls into the pit of his own making. It's funny. We're meant to laugh. This is embarrassment. But it calls back to the image that we see there in verse 3, that God will put David's enemies to shame. And we already mentioned last week the same promise is true for us because we see this at the cross when God used even something as awful and terrible as the death of Jesus to put death to death. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme when he makes a mockery of death in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that when all who are in Christ are raised from the dead, the words of this saying will take place. He makes fun of death. He says, death will be swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? He's talking about death. Death is no laughing matter. Earlier, Paul had even just referred to death as the last enemy to be defeated. But here he's making fun of it. He says, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said it so well. He said it so well when he said, evil is a stream that one day flows back on its source. This is the paradox of grace, and this is the providence of God, and I hope it's even a comfort to you because it leads us back to the God's glory even in our suffering. Like ripples in the water, we cannot begin to comprehend the ways God has used and will use things we think are terrible and awful for his good purposes and for his glory. But the proof that he will and the proof that he does is Jesus on the cross. See, I could think of so many different things. I could think of so many different scenarios where it seems to me in my limited understanding that God has maybe indeed worked good from bad that God maybe has indeed worked good from evil. But at this point, I would just be speculating. I would just be talking about things which I know nothing about because I lack the eternal perspective of God. I lack the eternal perspective of God, so once again, I'll stick to what I know, and that's the cross of Christ, which appears as foolishness to the world, but is the very power of God to those of us who are being saved. I'm quoting again Paul from 1 Corinthians when he quotes the prophet Isaiah who quotes God saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set, the intelligence, I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. 
Paul goes on to ask the Corinthians, and this is Paul speaking here in 1 Corinthians, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. And we respond to the glorious strength of our strong Redeemer God in the only way that is appropriate and that is by offering to Him our personal praise because God is glorified by our personal praise. David sets an example for us here in verse 7 which James Montgomery Boyce calls the emotional focal point of this psalm. David says, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. The steadfastness David describes here is more than lip service. It's more than begrudging obedience. It's wholehearted and dedicated service to his deliverer. It's as if David is clapping his hands together, slapping his face to stir within himself the head-to-toe obedience and the urgency of praise that we see here in verse 8. Who is he talking to? He says, awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. Who talks like this except for those of us who have experienced God's salvation? But if you're here this morning and to you, praise, obedience to God, wholehearted obedience to God seems like a chore. If it seems difficult, I want to remind you of the Savior who purchased you for eternal glory. I want to remind you of grace. Some people to remind themselves, even me personally, to remind myself of grace has made grace into an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E, grace. And if that's helpful to you, I hope you use that because you're going to need it. Because joyful obedience is true obedience. True obedience is joyful obedience, but joyful obedience can only come through grace. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my what? My joy, my righteousness, my freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. By grace through faith in Him, the joyful obedience of Jesus belongs to you. And it is that very same grace that has the power to transform our cold, resistant hearts into hearts we would offer sincerely, wholly, and completely to God. Pastor and author Timothy Keller frequently quotes these verses from an old hymn text. He says, Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, the beauty of Jesus, are joined to part no more. And that is to say, our will and God's will we used to see as separate and opposed to one another. But seeing the beauty, experiencing the grace of Jesus, we now see that they are joined. It is a a joy and a delight to honor and glorify and obey the word of God, to obey Jesus. He continues and he quotes, to see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty into choice. 
The pardoning voice you hear this morning is none other than the voice of God who fulfills his purpose for you. He will send from heaven, he has sent from heaven to save you. And through it all, he gets the glory. He gets the glory of our personal praise, our personal obedience, but more than that, he gets the glory of the nations. David emphasizes as much when he says in verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. In this way, we can see at least two things. First, that private worship turns into public worship. Your story of grace. We talked about a story of grace just a couple of weeks ago from this stage. Your story of grace is too good to keep to yourself. After we finish proclaiming the victory, proclaiming the gospel to ourselves, we have to tell our friends. We have to tell our neighbors. We are compelled to tell our families. We're compelled to tell the whole world. We have to do it. This is what David is modeling. And this is his commitment here, but it's even more than that. The second thing we see is that it is the prophetic anticipation of the Savior who would bring the Gentiles, the whole world, into a covenant relationship with God. God is glorified when the nations and all who are far off are brought near. And this is even the picture that we see and anticipate that Apostle John gives us, who was given a vision of heavenly glory and writes for us in Revelation 7, he saw a multitude, a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, and even we will cry out, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the glory of God, that we would hide in him amid our storms and in our suffering, that God would send from heaven and save his people to his own favor, that God would be glorified through victory over his enemies for his people, and that God would be glorified when his people proclaim this victory to themselves and serve him with gladness and tell of this victory to the nations. The glory of God is the chief end of man. And it is the goal and the drumbeat of history. And we know that because of the victory that is given to the Lamb, nothing will stand in the way of this worthy purpose of God Almighty. He is and will be exalted above the heavens. He is and will be, his glory will be over all the earth, both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. God, your glory is amazing. We stand in awe of you and we thank you for the victory that you give. We thank you that Jesus has purchased us by his own blood and has set us free from the powers of sin and death. We praise you, O God, for being our shelter amid all of life's storms. And we thank you for your forgiveness and grace for the ways we seek any other shelter than you alone. Be glorified, we pray, when we seek you. God, we ask that you would continue to work in our hearts that we may have a fuller understanding of your glory, that we may have a fuller understanding of the glory of the grace that has made us new and redeemed us of sin. Empower us by your spirit to preach the gospel first to ourselves and then to preach the gospel to the nations. We long for your glory to be seen in this world, in this church, and in our lives. So give us boldness, Father, to declare the good news every chance we get. To you alone be all the glory and honor and praise. We pray in Jesus' powerful name. 
Amen.